You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 106. to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife and conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's guest on the show is Rob Gay, a paleontologist, biologist, educator, and author. Rob and I actually worked together as condor field biologists in northern Arizona and southern Utah almost 10 years ago now. And when I found out that Rob had played an important role in the recent designation of Bears Ears National Monument, I reached out to him to see if he'd be willing to share his story. I'm super excited to have a paleontologist on the show for the very first time, in part because this is a subject that I've long been fascinated with, but also because this conversation with Rob highlights just how interconnected the field of paleontology is with conservation and advocacy. Let's jump in. I am Rob Gay. I'm the Curator of Museum Education here at the Museums of Western Colorado, which means that I develop educational materials for the local students all across the Western Slope. I'm also a paleontologist who has been working in southeastern Utah for well over a decade now, looking at basically the transition from a non-dinosaur-dominated world into a dinosaur-dominated world, what we call the Triassic-Jurassic transition. I'm super excited to have a paleontologist on the show. This is a first for us. I kind of wanted to take this opportunity to uh, sort of show folks that there is a very real connection between paleontology and conservation. So uh, let's start off with your connection to the area that, that is now known as Bears Ears National Monument. Um, how were you first introduced to this area, and what's it like out there? So I was first introduced to the area not as a paleontologist, but as just a recreationalist. Uh, this was back in my undergrad days at Northern Arizona University. I took a camping trip up that way, and I was just blown away. <laughs> I had no idea that this area was going to be like that. Uh, drove up there in the dark the first time, and we just found a spot to camp, me and my friends. And then when the sun came up, we were basically right near the edge of this massive cliff and looking out over what is called the Valley of the Gods. And it was absolutely breathtaking. And I have loved going to the area ever since. It's a very, very rugged landscape. You know, it is an, an area of contrast. There's these mountain peaks that go up above 10,000 feet over in the Abajo mountain range all the way down to the depths of the San Juan River Canyon. And it's mainly desert-dominated, very harsh scrublands in some cases. Other times you're up in more of a pinyon juniper desert upland. But there are also these gorgeous forests up on top of what's called Elk Ridge, where you've got these beautiful ponderosa forests and these broad meadows, grass, and then canyons that cut through all of this. It's a, an amazing landscape, and it's beautiful even if you have no connection to paleontology like myself or no connection to the astonishing archaeology and history in the area. It's just a visually very appealing area. Some of the classic, iconic American landscapes 
that we see repeated in cinema from John Wayne's day all the way through cars, you know, is from this area. But of course you are a paleontologist. So, I mean, you do have this additional connection to the area um, because I mean, you've, you've done some paleontological work there, haven't you? Yeah. I've been working in and around the area for a little bit over a decade now. I started exploring what's called the Chinle formation uh, in the area just east of what is now Bears Ears National Monument with a team from the St. George Dinosaur Discovery Site and the Natural History Museum of Utah. And this Chinle formation represents a period of time from about 220 to about 200 million years old. It's the very end of what we call the Triassic period. And it's very well known from places like Arizona. The Petrified Forest, for example, is a whole massive exposure of Chinle formation. It's also very well known from New Mexico. And it's not as well known from Utah, but there's uh, a lot of good work going on in Utah. But as I was doing some research, it dawned on me, reading over papers and looking at maps, that no one had really looked at the Chinle formation in the Bears Ears area. And this was kind of interesting to me because you have lots of really good exposure of Chinle formation further north. And of course, you've got the stuff down in Arizona, like a petrified forest. But no one has really studied in depth this section in between. And it occurred to me that this could be really important because it might tie together some of these northern faunas to some of these very well-studied southern faunas to see if you have differences in latitude, you know, in the fauna composition and latitude. And no one had been looking at it. So I began working at a place called Comb Ridge starting in 2013. Have you been able to sort of uncover some paleontological resources that, you know, have allowed you to answer some of these questions that you had? Yeah, we've only been working there, like I said, since about 2013, but we've already uncovered some really amazing things. We have uncovered the first remains of an animal called Crosbysaurus, which is this poorly known creature. Uh, it was probably a plant-eating crocodile relative, if that makes any sense. It was a bizarre thing, probably. Uh, but we only have its teeth. It's only known from its teeth. And previously, these teeth have been found in Arizona and New Mexico and Texas and also in North Carolina. But they'd never been found in Utah. And so when we discovered these teeth in 2014 and published on them uh, the following year, it was not only the first occurrence from Utah, but it also represents the northernmost occurrence of this taxon. So we can start to see that some of these animals that we know from the south were able to survive further north. I want to start talking a little bit about you know your connection to uh, uh, this advocacy campaign uh, to get the Bears Ears area designated as a national monument. As sort of a starting point to this conversation, I'm curious, like, if you had difficulty getting access to this area of Combe Ridge where you were doing the, your work. In some cases, uh, that is definitely the case. Um, it is, it has been known to happen to other folks, not just across Utah, but across the country, where sites that we would like to investigate are closed off for various reasons, whether they're private landowners and they just don't want to allow uh, collecting for a museum on their land, whether it's tribal lands and there's issues with tribal governments wanting to do certain things with fossils or not. Uh, that's a whole different complicated ball of work there. Or sometimes it's a management thing with a public land agency where 
you're not allowed to, for example, bring in a vehicle or bring in uh, a jackhammer if you're working in sandstone, things like that. But in my case, thankfully, it has been amazing to work with the Bureau of Land Management in Utah on this, specifically uh, Rebecca Hunt Foster, who is the BLM's Canyon Country Paleontologist. She has been fantastic. So I've never had any sort of issue with getting access to these sites, uh, to dealing with permits. It's been an amazing process. But my concern began cropping up because there I saw these proposals for a Bears Ears National Monument. And I thought, well, this is kind of cool. You know, this is my field area. I, I definitely believe that all these resources they're talking about are important. I wonder if they're going to mention paleontology. And I began following this a little bit more and a little bit more. And as things went on, I noticed that no one seemed to be mentioning paleontology. And this was getting concerning to me because I have access to the sites. But if there was a national monument to be designated and paleontology was not protected in a proclamation, that access could become harder. It's happened at other monuments where paleontology was not explicitly mentioned in the proclamation. And as a result, paleontological research has essentially been shut down. So I thought it was very important that paleontology was mentioned. And at the same time, there was a competing proposal from the Utah congressional delegation called the Public Lands Initiative that would have, instead of a national monument, created a national conservation area down in that area. And a bunch of other public lands things as well, but specifically related to Bears Ears, it would have created a Bears Ears National Conservation Area with boundaries that are actually roughly equivalent to what the final national monument ended up being. And that proposal was also worrisome to me because they weren't talking to, to, to me about paleontology, and I didn't know if they were talking to anyone else. It turned out they had talked to a couple BLM paleontologists, but the final draft that came out essentially ignored any anything that any paleontologist would have put in there. There was no provision for a paleontologist on staff. There was no provision for paleontology to be managed for. It was really, it did a lot of terrible things to public lands paleontology, not just in the Bears Ears area, but across the state of Utah. So I began poking at the people who were pushing these initiatives. I, I was sending emails to congressional delegation as well as attending meetings about Bears Ears National Monument. So I went down to Bluff, Utah, and <laughs> down in the corner of Utah, uh, back in March of 2016, when a group called Friends of Cedar Mesa was putting on an event called uh, Celebrate Cedar Mesa. And it's this neat thing where people get together and they talk about all the neat research that's up there and some of the cultural connections. There's biology on there. But again, no one was talking about paleontology. So that's sort of where I really started diving in deep. I made my voice heard there, and from that point, I was in touch with the Friends of Cedar Mesa folks, along with folks from the Wilderness Society, and they put me in touch with uh, people in the administration, and they were also funneling requests from the administration about paleontology back to me. So that's how it really all started, is just a general concern that access to these sites might be lost if paleontology wasn't protected. You're sort of like a reluctant advocate, you know, for, for this topic. <laughs> it's pretty accurate. You know, someone had to step up to the plate. No one else was doing it. And there's there's a number of reasons for that. So I felt that it was appropriate for me to 
to step in and do that. And eventually I was able to get a lot of other people on board, but for a while I felt like I was the lone voice in the wilderness reluctantly crying about it. <laughs> Did it ever right. cross your mind of like, maybe it's not a good idea to put a national monument here, you know, because they're not talking about the paleontological resources? Well, it was clear to me that something was going to happen. So uh, the people that were generally opposed to the National Monument were supporting uh, the Public Lands Initiative, which, as I mentioned, also didn't really protect paleontology. So something was going to happen. And if paleontology wasn't singled out in whatever ended up happening, paleontology would end up being the loser. So um, in terms of whether or not there should be uh, a monument down there at all, I am very, very aware of the the anti-monument sentiment running deep across the state of Utah and unfortunately across the West in general. I have a couple thoughts on that. One is it's public land. These special interest groups that are running these, these counties where these monuments are being erected, they shouldn't get to control what happens to land that belongs to all Americans. I mean, we can sit down and have a discussion on what is the correct way to manage these lands, but saying that, for example, San Juan County is the only group of people, San Juan County residents are the only group of people who should get to control what happens to several million acres that belong to 325 million Americans. It's ludicrous. So I think that a lot of the opposition is based on these strange special interests that do not actually represent the will of the American people as a whole. Clearly there, there was issues ahead of time too in terms of the preservation of fossil resources. Even if both initiatives failed, let's say the, there was no monument and the NCA proposal never went anywhere, which it ended up not happening. There were still preservation issues occurring within the Bears Ears region for example, I had had this amazing microsite, the most productive microfossil site from the Chinle Formation anywhere in the state of Utah, hands down. We're going to be publishing on it later this year. We had a poster about it at the Society of Vertebrate Paleontologists this past year. It had been driven over by ATVs. Now, this isn't on a road, so these are people that are violating the law. They're taking these vehicles off of a designated route, and they're driving over the surface and crushing these microscopic, you know, three millimeter and smaller teeth that have survived 210 million years. There's crushing them as they as they break the law. There are other places at Comb Ridge where petrified wood has essentially been hunted out. It's been completely pillaged away from any place near a road. And this is all without any sort of national monument designation or a national conservation area designation. And there's this interesting fossil. It's the lower jaw of a large crocodile-like animal called a phytosaur. If you imagine a 20-foot-long crocodile with a blowhole, that's what a phytosaur is. And we were prospecting for fossils, and we came across this lower jaw, and the lower jaw had actually been shot. It had been shot apart by target shooters. And I'm not sort of making any sort of wild leap here. At the site, we found spent lead 45 bullets embedded in and shattering the fossil remains. So there were already preservation and conservation challenges for these fossil resources. And a lot of people would say, well, why don't we just enforce the existing laws? 
that would have been fine had we had anyone willing to step up in Congress and fund enforcement of these laws and fund education so that people knew that these resources were out there and needed protection. And since that wasn't happening, really the only option was to increase the statutory level of protection with an NCA or a monument so that at that point people had to pay more attention to what was happening and hopefully we end up getting people to respect not just the existing laws but the new protections in place. You saw that there was this potential benefit to designating the area as a national monument as long as they had language in there about the paleontological resources, correct? Absolutely. That's absolutely correct. So at, at a certain point in this campaign, you know, once you got involved, you were asked to to travel to Washington, D.C. To, to present your perspective on this issue. I'm wondering if you can just tell me a little bit about, about this experience and, and, and what it was like. I mean, you, you had never really been involved in, in an advocacy campaign like this before. So I'm just curious to sort of hear, like, what that experience was like for you and what kind of response you got when you were presenting out there. It was pretty sudden and overwhelming. It had been suggested to me by a couple of the conservation groups that the administration might want to hear from a paleontologist. And that was brought up, I think, in September, early September to me. And I said, yeah, sure, I'm interested in doing this. I've never done it, but I'm willing to give it a shot. And then by the middle of October, it was pretty clear that it was going to happen. <laughs> and I had about a week's notice while I was at a conference <laughs> that I was actually going to fly out. There had been a couple false starts. And finally, uh, Scott from Wilderness Society called me and said, yes, this is going to happen. They would like you out there on on these days. Is that possible? And I said, sure, let's make this happen. So I drew, I drove back from Salt Lake after our conference. <laughs> And basically got on a plane the next morning and flew out to Washington, D.C., a place I had never been to, not even as a tourist. So I flew in at night and I'm driving around, you know, taking the, the cab back to the hotel we were staying at. And Washington Monument's all lit up and there's a Lincoln Memorial. And I'm like, wow, this is great, except I don't have time to be a tourist. <laughs> I'm going to spend the next day essentially in meetings and then fly out the day after that. So it was it was really interesting because you hear about people making these sort of decisions in Washington, D.C. in sort of an abstract way. And you always wonder, you know, do they actually understand the issues on the ground or are they just getting them from people like myself? You know what I mean? Are they just getting information secondhand from people that know? So while I was waiting at the BLM national office, there was a fossil skull cast of a giant alligator from Utah on display, which was kind of heartening. And there was a person walking down the hall with a, with a colleague talking about how they love to go out to Moab and go camping on BLM land there. So it was kind of reassuring to see that the people in Washington, D.C. that are making these really big decisions or helping to make these really big decisions with long-lasting impacts for national conservation are also people that have had boots on the ground in these areas they do understand the local issues. And I think that's something else that gets lost in a lot of the debate. Oh, well, we got all these outsiders coming in here. Sure, a lot of people don't live in these areas, but it's also not like the people in Washington, D.C. are actually disconnected from what's happening on the local level. 
So, yeah, I had a meeting at the Department of the Interior and talked to the folks at the at the office of the Undersecretary of the Interior, which is pretty amazing. That's an amazing building, too. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it was designed, I think, in the 30s for uh, Interior Secretary Ikes or Ikes. And he wanted to make sure that every office had a window. So it's this weird crenellated shape. It's not a square building. And every office in there has a window that looks outside. It might just look to a courtyard. But every office has a window, which is kind of odd. Yeah, it's not anything I would have ever expected going to a, a big government building. It's also kind of funny for me because I've got a, an office here in Fruta. And it has two exterior walls, and I have no windows. So that's a strange change there. And then we had a meeting with the White House Department of Environmental Quality, and that was really cool to me because it's not in the White House proper, but it's you know part of the executive branch. And it's in this really old row house right across from Lafayette, right across from the White House at Lafayette Square. And folks there were great as well, super receptive to the message that I had to say. Essentially what I got from every place, from the Department of the Interior, from White House Department of Environmental Quality, and then later from USDA Forest Service was, wow, we had no idea that paleontology was so important here. Thanks for letting us know. We're definitely going to be considering this now as we make our decisions. Hmm. So that was really reassuring to hear. I felt like I actually made a difference. So I didn't get a whole lot of time to do touristy stuff. I spent an hour in the Air and Space Museum. But on the whole, would I rather have made an impact and made sure that paleontology was protected in a Bears Ears National Monument or gone to the top of the Washington Monument? <laughs> and I know which one I choose there. Yeah, uh, and I mean, what a unique experience to get to, I mean, meet with all these people and, and, and be a part of this process. This happened in this past October? Yeah, I was there October 31st. Spooky to be in Washington. <laughs> nice. Right before the election. So, I mean, not too soon after that, I mean, a few months later, Bears Ears was, it was announced that, that Bears Ears would be designated as a national monument. I guess I wonder, you know, how did you first hear about this decision to designate Bears Ears uh, as a national monument? And, you know, what, what was the first thing that you did or thought upon hearing this news? So in late December, right before the Christmas holiday, some colleagues and myself put out a preprint on the oldest vertebrate trace fossils from the Bears Ears area. These are, uh, there's a dinosaur track and an armored plant-eating crocodile track from the Chinle Formation at Comb Ridge. So these are the oldest ones at Comb Ridge. And I sent this preprint to some folks in Washington, but also to several of the advocacy groups that I've been working with and to the local BLM offices down there. I said, hey, here's just another thing that we've got going on. Just so you know, I had previously built this big bibliography of fossil resources in the Bears Ears area and said, hey, here's another thing to add to that. Fossil resources are important, guys. Don't forget. And I got a message back from one of the advocacy groups that said, things are moving very quickly right now. Thank you for this. I think that you will be pleased, essentially, is what they said. And so I had a good idea a little bit before Christmas that something was probably going to happen. And then on the 28th, which is the date that the president proclaimed the National Monument, I had a, a phone call from one of the advocacy groups saying, hey, by the way, guess what? Well, there's going to be a press conference at the top of the hour, and there, and this is that's what's going to happen. So I was excited, but I was also super nervous because despite everyone saying, well, paleo is great, 
We're really glad you came up to Washington, Washington to present about paleontology. There wasn't still a guarantee that it was going to be protected. So I was nervous, anxious, excited. I saw the press conference, uh, or press release come out, and there wasn't a conference. And, hey, all right, there's a Bears Ears National Monument. And my first two thoughts are, what are the boundaries? And the second question I had was, is paleo protected? Now, one of the big things that came up in Washington was whether or not to include an area called Red Canyon, which is on the west side of Bears Ears. If you look at a map of Bears Ears National Monument now, you'll see that there's this isolated little chunk of Bears Ears National Monument, which is called Mancos Mesa. And then you see the main portion of Bears Ears. And the area in between is called the Red House Cliffs and Red Canyon. And it's some of the most productive Chinle formation anywhere in the state of Utah. A bunch of amazing things have been discovered there. And it's also a very rich uranium area. And it had been left out of Bishop's PLI. Uh, there's a lot of fossil sites there. And when I was in Washington, I got the sense that they were weighing whether or not to protect that area. And so I was really curious to see if they did. And I saw a map. It was not protected. So that was a little bit disheartening for me. Uh, I think that paleontologists could have made more of an impact on preserving that area, actually, because most of these amazing discoveries are well-known to people in the field, but also haven't been published. So I couldn't point to, you know, these papers, these scientific papers or an abstract or whatever, when I was in Washington, D.C. to say, this area does need to be protected. There was nothing in the literature. So I think that paleontology could have done more there, uh, historically. And then the other question, of course, was the proclamation language. And it took me a while to find out what was going to be in there. Um, a couple hours of searching on Google and chatting with people. And I eventually found where they had listed the language. And I was super pleased to see paleontology was protected. And that a lot of the wording in there was actually wording that I had come up with and given to the administration uh, in my executive summary of the research. There's some changes in there. But uh, overall, I was very pleased to see that not only had paleo been protected, but that my contribution to protecting paleo had made it into this, into this national monument in a very concrete way. Had paleontologists been publishing more consistently their findings in this Red Cliffs area, that you would have had a, a essentially it would have been a lot easier for you to argue that it was important to protect that area as well. It's just a really interesting connection to me, right? Because probably very few people think about the connections between paleontology and advocacy, right? And the importance of advocacy for maintaining access to um, these areas where there are rich paleontological resources. I guess I just wonder sort of like, you know, what's what's next for you? I, I assume that you'll continue working um, at, at the site that you discussed um, in Bears Ears National Monument. But I mean, I also just wonder if like, you know, how this experience has sort of uh, changed your perspective on this field. And if you're going to continue being involved in, in advocacy moving forward. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be continuing with our work at Bears Ears. You know, we've got plenty of sites at Comb Ridge that we uh, have additional work to do at. We've got We've got amazing stuff coming out here in the next couple of years that in in review, in press, uh, or we're just getting started in the field. And we've also got some amazing stuff from the Red Canyon and Fry Canyon area, which was not protected. So one of the things going forward that I would like to do is make sure that some of these areas that were left out of Bears Ears are still being protected, that we still 
are, are getting work published from there and showing the value of these areas. So maybe at some point we would see a national conservation area encompassing those areas uh, or an expansion of Bears Ears National Monument, something along those lines. Because it's very clear to me that people understand the value of paleontology once we've once we have a, a publication record to show that it's there. And it's now a matter of making sure that myself and all of my colleagues are doing everything we can to produce high-quality science that's out there in the public realm that people can see so that it's not just one or two academics saying, this is an important area to, to preserve, but so that the public can really see why these areas are special for science and for uh, conservation in general. That brings up, I think, an, another aspect of this that, that I think is really important, which is education, right? And I mean, that's part of what you do. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I wonder, like, are, you know, are you, are you bringing school groups out? Are you getting kids out to these research sites where, where you're working in Bears Ears? Yes, absolutely. That's one of the things that I'm really passionate about is bringing real-world science, specifically paleontology, to high school students. So for the last couple of years, we've had an amazing program uh, that has been supported in part by the Canyonlands Natural History Association, which is based out of Moab. They've given us some grant funding, and we've been taking high school students from across the West out into Bears Ears, out to Comb Ridge, and working with them there. They've been able to be part of every aspect of paleontology. So they do the field work. They get an idea of what camp life is like. You know, they love sleeping out under the stars, camp food they usually like, the hard work under the sun they're sometimes a little bit skeptical about. But they are also making these awesome discoveries. And not only that, but these students are then going on to work with me and others to prepare these specimens back in the lab and then publish on them. So in 2015, I mentioned that Crosby Soros paper we had. That was written by myself and one of my former students who was still in high school when we published that paper. I've got, I think, three papers in review right now with at least one former student co-author on there. And one of them includes a student co-author as a lead author for the paper. So we're getting students from all across the area to be involved with this area, to make a connection to it, a lasting connection, and also to contribute to the science. And I'm hopeful that this program will continue again this year. We've got some great stuff planned and lined up down in the field. I'm going to be talking to Canyonlands Natural History Association in just a couple weeks presenting this year's plan. So hopefully we can continue that partnership and get students out there. When I was a kid, my dream was to become a paleontologist. (laughs) Um, And yeah, all I can think is how how much I would have loved an opportunity like that when I was when I was that age. Very, very cool to hear about, you know, how you're getting kids out there. And I mean, not just getting them involved in the day-to-day work, but like getting them involved in the publication process as well, I think is, is really important. So they see the full spectrum of, of what it takes to, you know, not just to be a paleontologist, but to be a scientist, right? Yeah. Um, when I tell folks that, you know, yeah, when I was a kid, you know, I really wanted to be a paleontologist. Um, I usually follow that up by saying, you know, well, I came pretty darn close because, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time working as a, a field biologist and working with birds specifically, which are the closest living relatives of dinosaurs. Um, and Rob, I actually know you 
through the time that, that we spent together working with California condors in uh, northern Arizona and southern Utah. So, I mean, your background is more than in just paleontology. I mean, you spent some time working as a field biologist with California condors. And I, I guess I just wonder, like, how that experience sort of shaped your perspective. I can only imagine that, you know, the time you spent working with uh, this massive bird species, the largest flying land bird in North America, the California condor, shaped your perspective in some way, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, when I was working for the condor project there with you and, and with everyone else there, it was a awe-inspiring to be around these creatures because, you know, they are living dinosaurs. Birds are, are descendant from these small, uh, feathery raptors, essentially. And here's this massive one, like I said, the largest flying land bird in North America. And when you're up close with one of them, uh, you really see that they are dinosaurs. So <laughs> uh, when I'm describing dinosaur behavior to students in the lab, in the field, when I'm out in my classroom, I often draw on my condor experience. You know, I show off the scars I have on my knuckles from when I was bit by a condor. Like, whoa, that's crazy. Yeah, people think of birds as like chickens being dumb or, uh, you know, eagles being these majestic creatures, but they don't really have a whole lot of experience with actual bird behavior, especially wild bird behavior. And so getting students engaged in paleontology and science in general by bringing in this awesome charismatic species that i've been super fortunate to work with uh really helps engage them because they, <laughs> they know what a condor is in general most students have at least heard of them so it's a good starting point to jump off from that into behavior of fossil animals and to get into the fossil record in general yeah that's you know that's a really interesting point you brought up is you know you mentioned behavior right and and how sort of observation of birds as the closest living relatives of dinosaurs, like how that can sort of inform, you know, a lot of these questions that I'm sure, I'm sure paleontologists have all the time of like, okay, like this is, you know, sort of the physiology of the animal based on the skeletal remains and, uh, uh, you know, these fossils. But yeah, like to, to have to think about the behavior of these animals. I mean, is that like a common thing that, that paleontologists do is to like look to bird behavior to sort of inform the behavior of some of these dinosaur species? Yeah, absolutely. And especially for uh, a small subset of us paleontologists who classify ourselves as paleobiologists. So I originally got into field biology back in college when I was working with the Forest Service for the Forest Service with uh, spotted owls and goshawks in far eastern Arizona. And that was an internship I got through Northern Arizona University. And I got that internship because I had changed my major from geology to biology because I love these animals of the past, but I'm especially interested in knowing how they were as animals and how they functioned in these ecosystems. So it's not just about describing the bone of this animal or whatever. It is seeing how these organisms functioned as living, breathing organisms. So looking at birds and crocodiles for, for dinosaurs is super important. If we're trying to interpret what the behavior of these extinct non-avian dinosaurs was like, we have to use their two closest relatives, crocodiles, which are just crocodiles and alligators are archosaurs as our dinosaurs, and then birds, which, which are, as we discussed, are living dinosaurs. So looking at modern behavior is super important. Now, I've got a, a paper in review right now looking at bite marks 
on the face of one of these phytosaurs from here in Colorado. And I've got to go through and look at modern literature on modern animal behavior in terms of how do modern animals make bite marks? What are marks that are bite marks versus marks that are caused by transport down a river system, for example? So if we don't know how modern animals function, we're never going to figure out how animals in the past functioned because we can't directly observe their behavior. I love those connections, right? Just making people more aware of how interconnected these different fields are, uh, you know, both within science and then even getting outside of the world of science, right? I mean, we've talked about paleontology, the connections with biology, and then also with advocacy. Um, All this stuff is interconnected. um, And conservation, obviously, is at the heart of all of this. And, you know, you have sort of one more uh, skill set to sort of throw into the mix here beyond everything that we've discussed. You're also a fiction author, right? <laughs> um, and yes. so I, I, can't, I, I can't end this interview without at least touching on that briefly, um, because you wrote this really amazing novel called The Marauders, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Where did the desire to write a novel and like, you know, like why, why fiction? You know, <laughs> that's an interesting question. I haven't written very much fiction recently. I've been having to focus most of my writing effort on, on our on our technical publications. Um, but I, I felt like it was a story that needed to be told. You know, I'm a big fan of Ed Abbey and of a bunch of other more modern writers that deal with the state of the desert southwest and of the environmental movement here in the 20th century. But none of them had really looked at sort of the combination of the two you know if you if you look at the madcap mayhem described in monkey wrench gang and then also if you look at another book the lobo outback funeral home i don't know if you've read that but you know it involves similar sort of things a little bit more toned down but basically you have you know people cutting brake lines on bulldozers and sabotaging industrial equipment all this stuff things that would now in a post 9-11 world be called environmental terrorism rightly or wrongly a lot of these modern authors weren't looking at how Abby would be filtered through today's media. You know what I mean? Uh, but there's still plenty of folks out there that feel that Abby's message of direct nonviolent action against development is, is very strong and resonates with them. So what would happen in this modern technical society post 9-11 if people tried to act out on these desires? And it, it's kind of interesting because the whole crux <laughs> of the plot is the creation of a national monument in the Bears Ears area, and all the protagonists are completely against it, and they're trying to stop it from happening. <laughs> so we, we were talking about, you know, do I understand the no monument people uh, that have been, you know, against a national monument in the Bears Ears area? Yeah, I wrote a novel about it. <laughs> I think that I, that the way I was coming at it, though, was not necessarily from the same place as they were. I was looking at it as these folks are following the gospel of of Edward Abbey, such as it is, and how that would bump up against people following a more mainstream uh, conservation agenda. You know, working through the system to bring about change and have political figures do things uh, that would eventually end up in protect in 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 a enhanced protection. And after the monument was declared, I actually was thinking about the book and and I haven't thought a whole lot about it super recently. But I was thinking about it I was like, you know, a lot of this 
is really outdated now. I should go back and, and see if I can activate some of these characters in my brain and, and bring an update to my own work. You know, how would how would these characters respond to a Bears Ears National Monument? Because the Bears Ears National Monument that we have now is very different from the, the fictional Moon House National Monument that was created in my book, both in how it came about and what sort of uh, administrative actions would occur. Ironically, some of the actions that my book talked about in terms of restricting access to Moon House and things like that are <laughs> are things that happened under the BLM after I wrote the book, but before there was a national monument. So there's all of these strange, almost predictive things that occurred uh, that have occurred since writing this book. I mean, at the time when I was reading it, right, which was several years ago, I mean, it, it felt it felt very relevant, right? I mean, it, it felt connected yeah. to these issues that that are are going on in the desert southwest region today. Um, but with this sort of mindset and approach, you know, like you sort of said, uh, you get into the mind of these characters and you sort of understand that they uh, they are sort of students of of Abby of that mentality, right? And it's sort of like mm-hmm. how do how do people like that? sort of deal with, you know, the system as it stands currently. Um, and, and I really enjoyed the book. Um, and I would love for Thank you to you. write a sequel, so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I batted around the idea a couple times, but I, I've been giving a little bit more serious thought now that uh, Bear's Ears is in the books, so to speak. You mentioned as well, like, your characters are opposed to the creation of this fictional monument that, that you create in the book which has a lot of connections to the real world and, and Bears Ears and that whole movement. Is, is that something like you thought about while you were engaged in this, this Bears Ears advocacy campaign? Like, because I mean, when you're writing fiction, right, you have to put yourself sort of in that mindset of those characters that you create, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think that there's a little bit of myself and all of the characters in there and there's little bits of other people in some of the characters too. Um, yeah, it was something I, I thought about and found irony in <laughs> as I was going through all this advocacy stuff, for sure. I was like, well, this is not how I would have anticipated – it's not what I would have anticipated doing at the time of writing. You Because know, at the time that I was writing that book, I didn't think that additional protection was necessarily needed. I thought that the best way to protect some of these areas was just by keeping them secret. You know, hiding them away from everybody. That's that's a little bit of an elitist attitude, frankly. <laughs> I've I've come to think now, but also uh, I've been able to see since writing the book through my own recreational activities as well as my own professional activities in the area that not talking about something doesn't mean things don't get damaged. <laughs> like uh, like I mentioned with the ATV tracks, with the with the shooting, with the with the pillaging, uh, that stuff's happening, <laughs> and it's not like there's a Hey, here's where all the fossil wood is, and out on the internet, it's it's a secret, but people still know about it, and people are going out there and and loving it to death, or purposely being malicious about it. So secrecy only works for a little while. What's what's the phrase about you know three people can keep a secret if two are dead? Obviously, I'm not advocating for death here, uh, but I think the point is that there's that there's too many people that know for it to actually be a secret. Thanks, Rob. It's been a lot of fun chatting with you. It's good to reconnect after all these years. It seems like a long time ago that we were 
working together out in Arizona, following well, the California condors all around. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It has been a while. <laughs> but uh, yeah, definitely fun chatting with you. Really cool to hear about your involvement uh, in, with Bears Ears and the designation of that new national monument. And yeah, thanks a lot for coming on the show and chatting with us. Well, thanks for having me. All right. That was our conversation with Rob Gay, the curator of museum education at the Museums of Western Colorado. I love that we were able to talk about public lands advocacy, paleontology, California condors, and the influence of Ed Abbey all in one conversation. Rob definitely does a great job of showing how interconnected all of these topics are within the context of conservation in the desert southwest. If you'd like to learn more about Rob's paleontological research in Bears Ears, as well as his education work at the Museums of Western Colorado, you can head on over to the show notes page for this episode, where you'll find a variety of additional resources related to today's conversation. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC106. That's W-I-L-D-L-E-N-S-I-N-C dot org slash EOC 106. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. The Humidors.